you have to imagine crazy things in order to take the next steps. It all begins with imagination. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, Lieutenant. Captain. Or Commodore. Commodore. Oh, <laughs> that reminds me that uh, when you fly certain airlines, they, some airlines, and, and British Airways is one that comes to mind, I know does this. They allow you, you know, you put your name in and then there's a little pop down, a pop up menu or oh, for pop a title. down, whatever yeah. you call it. <laughs> you mm-hmm. click that little thing and, and you can choose Mr. or Mrs. Some airlines will go so far as to put in doctor, you know, Mm -hmm. go to British Airways, BA.com or whatever it is, and you don't have to complete the sign up, but put it, you know, start it because next to your name, you can literally, you can choose three pages, (laughs) I think, you know, worth of names. And Mm -hmm. so often I go by professor. If any, if anything, sure. like when I actually I, I took a bus to Cornell, and of course, naturally they they offered professor, but I, you know, I uh, stole that. I teach film, you know, at a trade sure, school. Exactly, so I'm yeah. a, pro- I'm a professor. Yeah, I profess mm-hmm. to profess. You, you profess things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the one I choose, British Airways, and is Air Commodore. Oh wow, nice. You know, they even have you know because it's. Britain, they have like all these royal things. Yeah, they really care about their titles there. Yeah, the Dutch. I remember a few years ago, a few years ago, I got one of those menus from you know my alumni organization. The same thing. It had this drop down for titles, so of course I scrolled through to see what the options were, and one of them was His Royal Highness, which oh. I thought was pretty cool, yeah. and then also Supreme Court Justice. Ah. Oh. Uh, And I was like, well, that's really specific, right? They clearly (laughs) want to make sure (laughs) that particular (laughs) alumnus is able to choose their correct title. Now, I wonder, I think there are, of course, the nine, when it's full, U.S. Supreme Court justice. But I wonder if that also includes Uh, other countries. Well, even like New York State has, like when you go on jury duty, often it says New York State Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But All right. anyway, you know that the only people choosing that are felons. <laughs> <laughs> They'll never suspect the me terrorists. if they think I'm a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> yeah. You know, when um, back when I worked in a, a big research lab, everybody except me essentially had a PhD. So nobody would address each other as doctor except as an insult. When somebody would screw up, then they'd be like, oh, nice job, doctor. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that was interesting. That's awesome. Let's see, in film, the title in, in filmmaking, the titles, you know, director seems like it should be something, but you don't really, you never call people by their title. Director like, Smith. Yeah, that'd be weird. Yeah, or even like I can imagine the assistant. Nice job, editor. <laughs> Ooh, what an insult! <laughs> Good job, assistant editor. <laughs> 
That's funny. That's funny. Mm. Now, I, uh, so I, I, I was down in Florida. I love flying. Mostly on a plane. Okay. Actually, all, I think always on a plane, occasionally a roller coaster. But anyway, I love, I love flying. I love going to the airport, you know, and I love, I get to the airport as early as I can. And, you know, I, I just, you just like hanging out. Yeah. It's a cool place. And, but one, one thing in particular, of course, about flying, I always get a window seat and, and I love to take pictures or even just look out the window. Cause even since I was a kid, it always struck me as odd that, whoa, I'm, sitting here by the window and I'm looking out at like this insane, you know, like wonder, <laughs> natural wonder, mm-hmm. whatever, just yeah, like the view from magical, a plane right? is like unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And everybody else is sitting there, you know, getting wasted, falling asleep. <laughs> and then, and then when, um, back when televisions came into the planes, that was really <laughs> was the end of civilization. And so, Coming back to New York was a great example. It was a clear night, and we're we're you know up in the cl- up at our altitude, thirty thousand feet mm-hmm. or whatever. It was, clear. and I'm sitting by the window, and I'm on JetBlue, which is a great airline, by the way. Sure, even more. What is it called? Even more space. Like oh uh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I'm That's what they call it. short basically, and I always thought, eh. You know, why? Anyway, the only seats available on this one were even more space. So I paid the 50 bucks. It's pretty great, actually. So there's the little TVs in the back of the chair in front of you. Mm -hmm. And annoyingly, the brightness button on mine was broken. Usually, that's the way you can turn it off. Some people don't even Mm -hmm. know this. If you go all the way down and you get to the last brightness and hit it it'll usually turn off this one wasn't going anywhere and it was stuck at the brightest yeah and this is a night flight we <laughs> departed at like you know eight uh, thirty p.m or something so anyway we're flying along and i look out the window as we got closer to new york and this the number of stars that you could uh, see yeah mm-hmm was unbelievable. And the only way I could see it, I mean, you, I did feel like everybody should see this. You know, mm-hmm. all these people going to New York like I am, you know, we never see it. You oh, never well, see it, yeah. Go out to the country, you can see it for a brief time. Mm-hmm. And I have to put both hands in front of my face. I have to... Ignore the fact that I don't care. I have to not care what I look like doing this. Mm-hmm. A lot of people sure. can see me anyway. Smash my face up against the window. Try <laughs> to, I don't know if you ever tried to do this, cup your hands. Sure, yeah. You try to seal off the light. Yeah. And those windows, you know, there's actually like a double pane of windows and the, the other mm-hmm. pane is quite far. And so mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to block out all the light. And if you have a huge bright TV that just adds to the difficulty. But anyway, finally I could see it. You know, I really did, and it was incredible. And even though I know that we can, right? I know there are lots of stars. I've gone camping. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, traveled across the desert in the Southwest, which is probably the uh, best. Okay. Yeah. Right? 
the mm-hmm. best that you can right. see without going uh, up to uh, a mountain or mountain top. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's profound. I mean, the Milky Way was like, you know, even when I we would go camping, sometimes it wasn't so far out in the country that mm-hmm. that you could really see well. Right. I mean, it's like the Milky Way was like, oh, there's the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, oh, it's astounding. Yeah, if you're if you're not used to seeing it. And essentially, if you live anywhere like where you can see a neighbor, then there's some light pollution and you're not going to be able to see the, the, the proper Milky Way. And here in New York, forget it, right? Or like anywhere in the tri-state area, you got nothing. And then as, and I should say, this is actually one of my biggest regrets as a parent is raising my children in a place where they can't see stars normally. So like, like they'll see two or three stars and I'll say, oh, it's such a beautiful night, daddy. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> that is literally living in poverty. <laughs> the worst kind of poverty. Yeah. Stellar poverty. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, and it's until essentially the 20th century, every human being would have had that kind of view every night. That is, would have been able to see that, that full panoply of stars. And now we're just cut off from that, essentially, if you're part of the industrialized world. And this is so this is like a weird thing. Like I have to when I teach astronomy or history of astronomy, I have to spend the first day explaining to my students what the night sky looks like. Oh, my God. You know, (laughs) because they they know in some vague sense that there's stars in the sky. (laughs) <laughs> but they don't really know what that means or they don't know what the Milky Way looks like or the fact that the stars move across the sky every night, right? This is this is new stuff to them. And, you know, describing it just doesn't do it justice, but you do what you got to do. Yeah, and, you know, I even find myself, the first thought that came to mind was, it looks like a planetarium, which is kind of the only place <laughs> where, you see. where you see that. And then your feeling is always like, you know, if you don't know much about if you haven't been out of the city a lot, you see in the planetarium and it's like, okay, well, this is what it looks like if you could see everything. It's sort of like, right. like, oh, this is in the infrared. We're revealing something. It's like, here's. Right. This is what's behind those yeah, clouds of smog. And even that, you know, that, that kind of overwhelming moment of the sublime when you look up and the sky is, is truly full of stars. That's still only a couple of thousand stars that you can see with your naked eye. So that's still a teeny, teeny fraction of even the stars that are in our galaxy. It's, uh, yeah, our eyes just aren't that sensitive, right? So we can see two, 3,000 stars, depending on how good your eyes are. I think they're fracking behind you. Con Ed, maybe? Con Ed, yeah. <laughs> they're digging yeah. for electricity. <laughs> we know it's, it's down there. <laughs> uh, that's um, how desperate we've gotten. We're digging for coal in Manhattan, in New York City. Yeah, yep, I can believe that. Can you still hear me? Or is it? Oh yeah, no, uh, no, no. It's good. Too much. It's good. I just wanted to explain to our viewers, our viewers, the people who view with their ears. But how, here's here's the thing. I'm curious about. How do you feel like it? The that was my first thought too. That like. I was going to say ancient people, but like, you know, little more than a hundred. Even even Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Or even, even, um, I suppose Mm -hmm. in the early days of electricity, you know, still Mm -hmm. this guy was 
was probably Thomas Edison would have seen this kind of story. Yeah, that's right. Until he ruined it for us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Um, and took money for, for the privilege. But it's a, in, I don't know that there are many things, we, we often think about our modern times giving us all kinds of incredible wonders, which ancient man could never have imagined. Sure. Television, mm-hmm. whatever, travel, uh, you know, and communication. This is an enormous, I mean, imagine if you could bring that, if, I suppose people never saw the sky except for a few stars. And then suddenly modern technology brought it to us. That seems to me, um, it's bad enough that, you know, you, it, it is like destroying the biggest national park. Yeah, that's right. That, that's, that, that's, yeah, 10,000 light years across, right? Wow. <laughs> we destroyed that natural park. And that's right. So it's the sense of kind of being cut off from the natural world and kind of our heritage. And I just say there are, there are groups dedicated to fighting light pollution for, for exactly this purpose. And actually a colleague of mine who's, who's normally a music journalist, um, Amanda Petrusich wrote a wonderful article, uh, last year about light pollution and, and how we might get around it. So everybody, everybody Google that. Oh, yeah. What say her name again? Amanda Petruzic. She writes Rolling Stone. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we look up Rolling yeah. Stone, light pollution. Yeah. Amanda. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, but those, you know, those few thousand stars, you know, is that a, a knowable number of stars? All right. Can you, can you really say, I know where all of those are on any given night? Can you look up and know if one has changed or moved? And, and the answer to that is some people could and some people couldn't, <laughs> but like back in the, so I should say back in kind of, uh, before the 16th century or so, it was generally accepted that the night sky, the heavens did not change. That is, it was perfect. And this was, this was actually kind of, kind of by definition, the celestial realm is the place where nothing changes. And then down here on earth, is the crappy world where things live and die and change and mess around. But every time you look up in the sky, it's always going to look exactly the same. Even though they saw the moon and planets moving. That's right. But the idea is that they, they always moved in a perfectly similar way. That is, it never, they never changed. The moon always moved the same way. So this is kind of a, uh, a philosophical presupposition. And then, Usually the, the, the end of this is marked in 1577 when Tycho Brahe, the, the Danish astronomer with a fake nose, comes out of his, his castle one day and sees a new star in the sky. So this is obviously hundreds of years before photography, much less any kind of quick communication. So it's not like you can call up another astronomer and say, Hey, look, look in the sky and look at this new star. So but he, he noticed, he recognized it by eye. That is what he claims. And this is what, and you know, the first few pages of the document where he's, he's trying to persuade people that this thing is real. That's what he has to do. Is he has to convince people that he's so good at looking at the sky that he can tell at an instant 
that one of the 3,000 stars in the sky is new well, and shouldn't be there. Right? And we should just point out, for those who haven't seen a picture of him, and what was, his name is, uh, is it T-Y-C-O, Tycho? T-Y-C-H-O. Yep. T-Y-C-H-O, and his last name is B-R-A-H-E. H-G. And he was in the Netherlands, I think? Denmark. In Denmark. And he was the kind of guy that would say, that would boast, let's say. Yes, I should say. So, for instance, I, I made a passing reference to the fact that he had a fake nose. And this is true. He had a nose made of brass, sort of a prosthetic. And the reason he needed a prosthetic nose was that when he was in college, he got in a duel over the correct solution to a mathematical equation. <laughs> and he got his nose cut off. Yeah. So that tells you a great deal about Tico. He's, that, he's, that, he's the kind of guy who would draw a sword on you because you questioned the way he solved a math equation. Now, that's for a real mathematician. That would be a love, you know, pa- a crime of passion. Exactly. That's right. Yes, I'm sure there's some listener out there who's nodding their head and saying, yes, yes, I've always wanted to do that. Yes. <laughs> and um, so so he looked and so did he have a was he looking through a telescope? He wasn't a strong. No, this is actually this is actually before telescope, which is quite extraordinary. So he developed a number of hyper precise astronomical instruments, things like sextants and quadrants that were extremely accurate. But as he reports the story, he says, I just saw it with my bare eye and then went to his instruments and started taking measurements off of it. But but this is kind of it's kind of an interesting problem is. And and I should say it goes away after a little while. The star comes and goes. So he can't uh, he can't just write a letter to his friends in Berlin and say, look at this spot on the sky because it might not be there. Right. And it could it wasn't a satellite as today. If you saw something like that, if it wasn't a meteor, <laughs> it could be a satellite. You know, oh, that's, you know, Bill Gates is. One of his community, you know, iridium or something. You know. It's Elon Musk's pod returning to his home. Planet that's right. Or something, that's right. right? Or your space um, junk. Yeah. 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 But that's that's not an option, right? So so the the normal and then so first he had to convince people that it was there, and second he had to convince people that it was actually in the celestial realm, right? Because things like shooting stars have been known for a long time. So the question you ask one of these people, you know, in Aristotelian who thinks that the sky has to be perfect and unchanging, you say, well, what about these shooting stars? And they say, well, that's that's not actually in um, the celestial part of the, the universe it's just in the sky right it's, it's a meteorological phenomenon this is why meteor and meteorology have the oh. same root right? oh, wow. things things that happen in the atmosphere right so he had to persuade people that it wasn't in the atmosphere um, but that it was actually as far as the stars and for that that's kind of a tricky proposition right how now, do you why, figure why out how far he, away something is why was he even prone to believe that Oh, so this is actually a difficult question to answer. It's not really clear why Tico's up for this kind of stuff when other people aren't. Partially, it's that he's he, like Galileo, is a professional controversialist, right? So he, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) like Galileo, he's supported by powerful rich people. In his case, it's the king of Denmark. And the king of Denmark actually gives Tico a whole island called Haven, and Tico turns, and, and the people who live on it, because... Oh my god, how cool is that? So Tico turns the whole island into uh, essentially an astronomical 
one giant astronomical observatory. So like all of these peasants get conscripted to do astronomical observations and things like this. So there's a sense in which Kiko, like Galileo, has to look for exciting things to talk about to justify to the king why it's worth him enslaving all of these people. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some of that. But otherwise, it's not quite clear. You know, this is something argued about by, by historians as, as, as why Tico was the one who was willing to do this. And, and one answer might be that he's, he's an obsessive measurer. So he, he measures everything in extreme detail. And so he builds these gigantic instruments so he can make more and more precise observations. So it might be that he didn't so much care about the philosophical implications. That's just a thing he did. He just did obsessive measurements of everything. And of course, it strikes me that it's true that a meteor moves, it clearly moves across the sky and very fast. I mean, it's, there's no question. And it very much seems like it's in the sky, especially because it's burning. Yeah. And Whereas this star he saw, he would have understood that the farther away it is, the less motion it would have. And if therefore, night after night after night, it was still in the same place with regard to all the other stars around it, it's very far away. Right. Yeah. So there's this technical measurement called parallax that you can do to, to estimate how far away something is. And he finds that essentially the stars, for, from his point of view, the stars have zero parallax. And he demonstrates that this new star has zero parallax as well. But it's, uh, you know, nowadays we, we're used to thinking of the celestial world as a changing, messy place, right? Stars explode and, you know, it's, things change, right? And that can be a difficult uh, thing to grasp sometimes, that's why people thought the, the stellar region was was perfect and pure and unchanging. What's, I got to say, looking out the plane window, honestly, my very first reaction was, oh, it's weird. Like it, it, it didn't just look like the planetarium. It looked like it was just a round surface. Like even the Milky Way, it felt like it curved over. It looked like it was painted on the ceiling, a curved ceiling that went over the place. And I mean, I had to honestly, I consciously tried to fight that and say, no, no, no. Wow, that's the galaxy. <laughs> Try to envision that in 3D. No, it's very hard. And if And if you're sitting out at night long enough to see it rotating over you, that completes the illusion even more strongly because it looks exactly like a big shell overhead that's rotating around you. That is that is precisely what it looks like. So it's uh, and this is one of these things where, like, again, trying to explain this to my students, because they never have that experience, they don't get it. And they're like, yeah, weren't the Greeks just a little weird or dumb or something? Thing. And I'm like, no, this is just what it looks like. <laughs> trying trying to convince you that it's actually you that's moving or something is really hard. Right. Or even constellations in particular. It's like, how in the world does, you know, Orion, like what we see of Orion, mm -hmm. the few stars that we see, at best looks like some weird stick figure. And even that is hard to imagine. But when you see the true sky... When the sky is clear, you don't even have, I mean, we're not even talking about going in space. This is just, you could be sitting there in Athens or on an island. And there's so many stars that it's much, there are many more dots to fill in. And you can really be imaginative. 
In fact, you can't help, honestly, you can't help, I remember as a kid looking up at this guy, you can't help but start, just like when you look at clouds, you see figures and shapes. Oh, yeah, you get that uh, paradoia thing where you're, you want to see faces and shapes and familiar things. What's that called? Paradoia? The paradoia? I can never pronounce it right because it's got some weird E-I-L-D construction in the middle of it. But yeah, it's like paradoia. Um, and it's the tendency of the human brain to see images, uh, specifically faces, to see faces and surfaces that don't have that. So this is the explanation for like, you know, the, the Virgin Mary on toast kind of thing. I'm going to call that the paranoid doily effect. The paranoid doily. I'm totally down with that. When you look at a doily, you you can see a face. Yeah, it's looking at me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so what the if? Uh huh. All right, let's take a let's do a really, really, really simple one. What if we could, you know, we didn't have these damn like these new LED lights they put up, and the street lights are so bright. They're so bright. Oh my god, it's incredibly bright. What if in our modern times, you know, or hopefully we conquer light pollution somehow and, but imagine this, we have everything we have. Our world is exactly as it is, except the stars are, you know, the sky is incredibly dark and it's full of brilliant gleaming stars. Like you would see in the desert. One thing I always felt was that I I wondered if the sky is is a scary thing. It's a humbling thing. Mm -hmm. And unlike, you know, when you visit the Grand Canyon or any natural wonder, especially a gigantic one, it's that's incredibly humbling, but it's not on top of you. Oh, well, that's true. That's right. You're at least on top. Yeah. And, and it induces, uh, a sense of vertigo, even, even if you don't get, think that we are on a ball, you know, which means that actually we are hanging in space as much as we are standing on the ground. Right. So it, it was a scary thing. So that they didn't mind putting up these lights. They didn't mind seeing less of the sky. Oh yeah, that's right. Because it's scary. Yeah, yeah, better to better to know. Well, that's an interesting uh, thought, right? And in fact, I, sh- I have to say, as usual, Isaac Asimov beat us to the punch on this. Uh, his classic short story, Nightfall, imagines a, a planet that's you know in a system with multiple stars. There are multiple suns, so they essentially never have a dark sky, except when you know once in ten thousand years they're all eclipsed at the same time and the stars come out and everybody goes insane that is they they simply cannot handle wow. the the magnitude of what they see ahead them so the the, the kind of uh, running mystery in the story is why civilization collapses every x number of years and it's because that's when people can finally see the stars ah i didn't realize that this is also an inspiration for the three body uh, problem yeah yeah this is the Mm-hmm. That the spiritual ancestor, right? Sort. So they went crazy because he was sudden. right. So there's two questions: What if it was suddenly revealed? Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious to take the even simpler one. Let's say it just always was there, and then let's say when did the sky start to disappear? It would have been the 30s, 50s. 
Certainly 60s. Oh, starting oh, in terms of light pollution? Yeah. 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But even maybe the second half, like, I mean, uh, whatever street light street lighting existed in the 50s or 40s or let alone 30s wasn't anything like what we have now. That's right. Yeah. And so and, and it's a very subtle question. Maybe nothing would have changed, but I'm curious. Do you think anything about the second half of the 20th century or now, you know, would have been changed if the dark sky had been maintained all throughout? Oh, boy. Well, maybe Justin Bieber would never have been uh, very popular. <laughs> Why is that? Oh, the star- more stars. <laughs> Too many stars. The show Star Search would have had a whole new flavor. Star Search. <laughs> it's, I don't know, because, you know, that is a really ephemeral kind of question, right? Maybe here's, here's a more clear question, because maybe that's too short a time, perhaps, to extrapolate. The damage has only begun if it's damaged. So imagine just, you know, what do you think, and, and people have spoken about this, but what are your thoughts on the effects of that? You know, let's, it, it's definitely getting worse. It's definitely not getting better. No question. Yeah. So we can easily imagine that it gets to the point where you can't see stars, except maybe the brightest arc tourists or something. Well, I mean, at least this would at least aggravate something I see a lot in the, the current generation of students is that even if they kind of know that you can look up in the sky and see dots of light, they don't actually connect that to like, the the images sent back from robotic spacecraft or pictures from the Hubble. That is, it's they know that there are these weird structures out in space, but they don't understand that that's the thing that they're looking at with their eyes too. So it seems that one of the effects of you know, having this era, great era of space exploration at the same time that light pollution gets bad is that I think kind of perversely it makes it makes everything that's in outer space seem further away. That is, there's there's no bridge between our everyday experience and those extraordinary things out there. Right. It might as well be like pictures, you know, you might see a picture in National Geographic from some part of the world, some really remote part of the world that you've not been. You know it exists. You trust that that, oh yeah, that cave exists. But it's just, you know, it's a picture from somebody's travels. Right. Yeah. So like, I mean, even if, you know, if you're, you're good enough at looking at the sky that you can tell the planets from the stars. So you say that, that little red dot there, that's Mars. And then you look at pictures from the Curiosity rover. You say, really? Like that's the same thing. But if you don't even, if, if you're not even able to look at that little red dot on the sky, then the surface of Mars is just a totally different thing. There's there, there there's no sense of like where that is relative to you or how you might be connected to it. Right. So here here's a way to take it even further. And I'm sure this this is like Neil Tyson's fantasy. This is like every uh, astronomer's <laughs> fantasy. Although maybe they like being the few people who actually know everything that's going on because it's job security. Aside from that, imagine if people were totally familiar with like the stars were they knew it like they knew the back of their hand which <laughs> that would be a stretch because even i think people in new york 
like in Brooklyn, you can look across the river and you see the whole skyline. So you see all the buildings. Most people can't name more than name all of them. Yeah, a couple of them. Right? Mm-hmm. Even the Chrysler building, people are like, what's that one? But nonetheless, imagine if it was just like a real part of our life, you know? Oh, and, and so that, you know, it is a profound thing when you hear, oh, space mission, and then it's a Saturn. And you look it up. I mean, look up because there's no That's other right. mm-hmm. travel. Forget the insane difference in the distances between anywhere you'd be on Earth. But mm-hmm. like, you know, here we are and we could say here's someone in China and they're doing, you know, this exploring this or sailing down the Yangtze River or something. This is like you can look up and see it's above you. You have a line of sight mm-hmm. to one of our furthest exploring craft. Yeah, you can actually see that thing out there. And that's, you know, and this is, you know, I guess kind of the, the inverse of what we've been talking about so far is that you can look up and see, you know, the a structure in the Milky Way that's thousands of light years years away and we can know what it's made of and how hot it is and how it's moving but we don't really know what is five miles under your feet right you you can't see that so sometimes you get this perverse thing with with astronomy where you you can understand something that's very very far away really well but something that's really really close you can't. Oh, uh, so I, I could push this even further, as we do here, in the hot box called What the If, the hot box of thought. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, you all, we, we do think like, uh, you know, Elon Musk thinks about this and, and Richard Branson think about this, but they, they feel like we're finally going to, they want, we're going to get there. It's close. So it's, something coming that ordinary people will get to get above the sky and see the curvature of the earth and see space and probably not long thereafter be able to go escape earth's orbit and let's say go to the moon and see things from even further away and that for sure is actually talk about the dark sky problem that that is going to change things (laughs) okay i guess i got all excited and optimistic it's wow. People on these ships, you know, they're going to fly to fly me to the moon, going to go to the Hilton Hotel on the moon that we were promised. And, you know, like in 2001, you can see it on like a plane or something. It says Pan Am. It's jet blue, right? Ram jet blue. <laughs> <laughs> and you can look out and you'll have this incredible new perspective. But you know what's going to happen. They're going to be watching a movie. You know, they're still going to look looking out the window. Yeah, they're yeah. going to like, put, can you pull the shade down? Because the moon is blocking out my movie. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, it's so big. We're getting so close to the moon. Uh, could you close the shade? Let's suppose that doesn't happen. Let's have an uh, optimistic astronomer fantasy. But you just combined it in, in a way that I never, ever thought of, which is. Uh, in the scheme of things, it's only a, a much smaller addition to the amount of space you're aware of or your perspective but you combine it with the geologist's fantasy that you also know fully what's inside that earth and moon i mean we could just start there so you understood 
not only, oh, wow, I can really see that these are three-dimensional spheres floating in this giant black space with all these billions of stars around, but inside there is a little iron core and a molten lava and things like that. Um, how would that change people? The humility, the humility factor would be huge. I think. That's it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the Apollo astronauts write about this, right? Seeing, seeing the earth from afar for the first time. And it's, and as you say, their, their reaction tends to be that one of humility, right? That is where this tiny little blue dot hanging in space. And all of a sudden, all of, you know, you can't see any national borders. You can't see countries or wars and everything looks petty from up there. And, you know, Sagan's pale blue dot essay is kind of about this, right? Back when, when, when you, when you look back at the earth from such a distance that it's one pixel, one little blue pixel. He says, you know, every, every religious leader, every tyrant, every celebrity superstar, every human being that has ever lived is in that little pixel. This is looking like uh, uh, the Voyager satellite looking back from Saturn. Yeah, yeah. And it's really an extraordinary thing. And it's hard to, you know, displace ourselves from our own importance, especially living in New York, of course, around which all, all events turn. Right. Well, the more the, the closer, the more stuff's going on close to you. That's the thing you got to it's going to take up your perception. It interesting too. It strikes me that um, the Apollo astronauts, of which there were only six times through eighteen, I guess, right? If there was eleven, twelve, 18, thirteen, 12, thir like that. Uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Oh, seven times three, so twenty-one people. I think Apollo thirteen got out far. Yeah, they got out all the way to the moon. Yeah, so, far enough to see. Yeah. It's a big difference. You know, I should tell our listeners, if you don't already know, which many of you probably do, but you can turn on on the Internet or on, uh, on YouTube and on many cable networks, if you can get NASA TV, at any time of day, you can turn on a full high-definition view from the space station. Oh, cool. Oh, have you done that? Uh, I have not, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like when I have to work late at night, I love to just... <laughs> Put that on the big TV, you know, and it just, you can just, it's live. What's even wild is, you know, when, they, when the space station goes overhead, if they happen to be broadcasting, then you could technically see like, yourself. That's yeah, that's right. You <laughs> wave. But anyway, the view, as we know, the, 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 we can all envision the view from the space station, even if we only saw the movies like Gravity. But the Earth is quite big from the height. You know, space station is in orbit, but it still really fills your view sure yeah mm -hmm. now they can turn the other way and look to the sky and see the world without the earth but pretty good but the difference in what the apollo astronauts saw the only ones ever to go far enough away that you could see the earth as a whole anyway really just see it from a great great distance yeah i think you're right that it profoundly affected their um, perception and i think the fact it's hard to get beyond the fact this is totally a human thing, but like the fact that those real people, at least for those of us who were experienced those missions as they happened, 
can kind of get a feeling. It somehow gives me a more automatic feeling about what that would have felt like. Whereas the pale blue dot, amazing image, totally profound. But somehow, because it was like you were talking about with your students, it was this picture that came back from this robotic thing. Isn't quite as look. If that was taken by a person, you know, I don't know. Sally, I suppose Sally Ride lived and <laughs> he went out there and Sally Ride t- took this picture. I think you'd have a huge. Uh, yep, I think that's right, and that's why you know the. The photograph that started all of this is called the Earthrise photo. It was taken by the Apollo 8 astronauts, right? And it's an amazing photo, but I think the reason it has this kind of sublime depth is because the people who took it can tell us about what it felt like. And it's hard to... Nowadays, you know, pictures of the Earth, like you said, we can have a picture of the Earth from space just beamed onto your television anytime you want. You can eat your macaroni and cheese while you're watching it. But once upon a time, there were human beings who saw that for the very first time in our species. Right. And, and hearing that, that testimony is always very powerful to me. You know, for the first time, a human being sees all of us. And you can, I think one of them, I can't remember which astronaut it was, says you can, he could reach out his thumb and blot out the Earth. And that's that's an extraordinary moment. All of a sudden, you know, you can imagine that there's no one out there anymore. It's just you. It's not just that, right? It's interesting. It's not just the view of the Earth from far away because they could see they could see that as they went. We would get pictures all along their journey. You know, so you'd slowly see the Earth shrinking, which was amazing. But Earthrise in particular would have been the first time anybody got to the moon, the first time anyone went around the dark side, so-called dark yep. side, the far yep. side of mm-hmm. the moon. And then saw the Earth rise over another body. Yeah, that's, that's right. Bizarre. In 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 some sense, this is very much like the moment Tico had when he looked up at the sky and saw something that, as far as he knew, no human being had ever seen before. Right, a new star in the sky. And that's not actually true. We can we can talk about it in a future episode. We can talk about. It in what sense Tycho was the first person to do this. But at least from his point of view, as a European astronomer, that was a genuinely new thing that no human being had seen before and perhaps had never existed before. So that, you know, there aren't many moments like this in our civilization's history, but they always make my heart run a little fast when I think about them. Cool. Actually, it'd be an interesting, like, uh, I don't know, a series like that, TV series or something, where uh, the first person to see book. Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Well, you know what? I'm just going to leave let, Let's just leave it there. That was, it, it's almost like, what the if would it be like to be one of those people? Yeah. Witnessing something. Like, put yourself in that place. That's pretty cool. Wonderful. Well, can we, uh, this is like a beautiful episode we didn't we didn't destroy any worlds except that one supernova i guess that Tycho brahe saw just to wrap that up do we know what star that was was that a supernova it was a supernova and we do know what star it was i can't remember off the top of my head kepler's nova a few years later 
is now a well-known nebula, so you can go look at that. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. So here's a little homework, a whole little homework for our, uh, for our fans out there. Go ahead and look up Tycho Brahe. Yeah. Take, take a look at the various nose accessories you might mm-hmm. avail yourself of, brass noses, and you too can be a badass astronomer. There's another series. Yep. Badass astronomer. <laughs> go, go memorize the sky. That's right. We have a website, whattheif.com. You can read about um, Matt and I there a little bit. You can see, you can hear all our episodes. And I'm glad to hear the uh, Con Ed has stopped digging, so they must have found some electricity. <laughs> so, so we'll be able to record next time. That's right. We'll be able to record. I, I encourage you to go enjoy the power that has been given to you. Let's salute the badass astronomers of the world, and we will talk next week. All right. Farewell. Bye-bye. <laughs>